You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondick, and I will be your host for the next 20-something minutes. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Adam Labor about the UN's inability to deal with genocide. The interesting thing about the Secretariat is that senior Secretariat officials always portray themselves as impartial civil servants just waiting for their instructions from the Security Council. But as my book shows, on several occasions... Uh, in crises such as Rwanda and Bosnia and Darfur, Secretariat officials have been involved in policy making and sometimes with uh, very unhelpful results. T.J. Clark about the power of sustained attention to art. Well, uh, it's experimental to try to write a day-by-day journal um, which records over a period of months and then eventually over, uh, over a less frequent period of years um, a return to, to paintings and what happens when you confront the same paintings time and again. And John Gribben about future developments in man's knowledge of the universe. This is one of the big stories at the moment in cosmology, this dark energy which is starting to make the universe expand faster. Um, people probably know that we come out of the Big Bang, a, a, a state of very dense uh, matter and energy, and the universe has been expanding for 13 or 14 billion years and this dark energy is just starting to push it faster and in a a relatively little while in terms of those tens of billions of years the universe will expand so fast that things will be pulled apart and there'll be no chance for life to exist stay tuned the ongoing humanitarian crisis in darfur shows no current sign of abating and in his new book complicity with evil the united nations in the age of modern genocide adam labor the Central European correspondent for the Times of London, explains why Darfur is the latest in a series of international crises that have worsened due to inaction by the United Nations. Adam Labor, thank you for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Where did the title Complicity with Evil come from? Well, the title is actually the UN's own words. It comes from a UN report into peacekeeping that was published in uh, the year 2000. And the report looked at the UN's catastrophic failures in Bosnia and Rwanda, And it said that uh, the UN's own obsession with impartiality and neutrality had, in the worst case, made it guilty of uh, complicity with evil. So I thought this was a marvelous title because uh, everyone picks up the title and thinks, oh, this is just, uh, you know, some kind of neocon, bushy UN bashing. But it's actually the UN's own words. There's all sorts of interesting things in internal UN reports, but not many people bother to sit down and read them. The full title of the book is Complicity with Evil, the United Nations in the Age of Modern Genocide. What was the relationship between the genocide of the Holocaust and the founding of the United Nations? Well, it was very strong. I mean, the UN was founded in uh, October 1945. And if you look at the UN Charter, it aims to save humanity from the scourge of war. And the UN Charter and the Convention on the Crime uh, Convention on the Prevention of the Crime of Genocide and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. These are the most elaborate and advanced formulations of human rights in history. And the Nazi atrocities and the Holocaust obviously was a major impetus into the the idea that the UN could help stop such horrors ever happening again. 
As we get into this, it might help to, for listeners to get a sense of the operational relationships that go on the political side of the United Nations. Could you talk a little bit about how the Secretariat, the General Assembly, and the Security Council all work together? Yes, the UN has three main pillars, which you've uh, rightly identified. The General Assembly is the meeting point of the 192 member states. It's essentially a talking shop. Its decisions and its resolutions and votes do not have the force of international law. The Security Council's decisions do have the force of international law. The Security Council has 15 members, five permanent members, the so-called P5, which is the United States, Britain, France, America, Russia, and China. That's the victors of the Second World War. And 10 non-permanent members who are rotated, five of whom are rotated in and out each year, and they're elected by the different regional groups in the General Assembly. So there'll always be someone from Africa, there'll always be someone from Europe, uh, and so on. Uh, the Secretariat is the body of permanent civil servants at the UN. And uh, the Secretariat uh, are the people that work for all the different branches of the UN, everything from the DPKO, Department of Peacekeeping Operations, to the World Health Organization, and the Commission, the High Commissioner for Refugees, and uh, the various human rights bodies. The interesting thing about the Secretariat is that senior Secretariat officials always portray themselves as impartial civil servants just waiting for their instructions from the Security Council. But on a, as my book shows, on several occasions uh, in crises such as Rwanda and Bosnia and Darfur, Secretariat officials have been involved in policy making and sometimes with uh, very unhelpful results. The three cases in your book that are focused on are, are um, the massacre at Srebrenica, the genocide in Rwanda, and Darfur. But I want to take a step back to the peacekeeping mission in Somalia in 1992. How did that affect those three, uh, the crisis that happened after that? It had the crisis in Somalia had a massive effect because uh, here you saw U.S. troops on the ground in Somalia and getting dragged into the conflict. And uh, in particular, we had the episode of the helicopters being shot down, which was later immortalized in the film Black Hawk Down, and the terrible footage of the uh, U.S. soldier um, being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu by cheering Somalis. Now, understandably, this caused a massive reaction in the United States as to why are our soldiers you know, dying and, uh, in these conditions and being paraded around. And it, it, the, the whole episode was very grim and very macabre and had a massive effect on the Clinton's administration's attitude to Rwanda in particular and to Bosnia. But my argument is that it had an effect on their a desire to intervene directly, uh, which was understandable, but it... it their Clinton administration's reaction went far, far beyond that. And what you saw happen in Rwanda was that uh, even though there weren't any U.S. troops in Rwanda as such, there was the 2,500 troops in Unimir, the peacekeepers there, it was under U.S. pressure that they were reduced from 2,500 to 250 because the U.S.'s fear and the Clinton administration's fear, which I think is quite shameful of involvement, even... Uh, took them to the level where they're demanding that all UN troops should be pulled out, let alone uh, arguing against you know, the insertion of more US troops. So it, it had an extraordinarily strong effect. Several times in the book, you pose, this, you pose a state of defense that comes from the Secretariat, saying that the UN can really do no more than the member states allow it to. I wonder if you could address that argument. Well, it is an argument, and it's an important argument. Uh, obviously, if the member states, in particular the P5, have, had wanted to intervene in Rwanda, had wanted to be much more robust in Bosnia earlier, then the UN would have done. But what I would argue is that 
the one variable in this, or one of the main variables, is the behavior of the Secretariat. And what we saw in Rwanda was uh, the Secretariat forbidding, in particular Kofi Annan's DPKO, forbidding General Dallaire, who was the head of the Rwandan peacekeepers, uh, permission, refusing him permission to raid the Hutu arms caches in January 1994. This was a decision taken by Secretariat officials in the DPKO. It was never even referred to the Security Council. Now, it's possible the Security Council would have said no as well, but the point, my argument, is that the job of the Secretariat is not to preempt the Security Council, it's to offer them options. And again, we saw this in Bosnia time and time again. Many people have told me, in particular American diplomats who served at the UN, that Secretariat officials were always coming out with this line that all three sides are guilty, it's a very complicated, messy civil war. Well, you know, technically, of course, all three sides were guilty. I mean, all in, in all armies, there's always a minority that uh, might commit war crimes, but the proportions of, of that guilt were something like 80% Bosnian Serb, 15% Bosnian Croat, and perhaps 5% on the government army. So uh, all three sides are guilty was, again, a means of diffusing pressure to take action against the Bosnian Serbs, against the ongoing genocide in, in Bosnia. How much of the job that you do is making previously classified information public, and how much is it just dogged research through publicly available sources? Uh, I think... Uh, um, most investigative journalism is, is often about the latter, really. There's just an incredible amount of um, information out there in public, and it's just a question of kind of knowing where to look for it. I mean, some of it is to do with asking for stuff to be declassified. I did put in a, free, a request under the Freedom of Information Act for uh, documents on Srebrenica uh, from the U.S. State Department. I got a couple of bits and pieces, but not that much. I had a real stroke of luck because... Um, there's a journalist called David Rode who works for the New York Times who wrote a very good book on Srebrenica a few years ago. And his archive uh, was handed over to the Open Society Institute, which is George Soros' organization, and ended up in Budapest, which is where I live. So uh, there's this incredible uh, resource, just like 10 minutes walk from my house, which was a real stroke of luck. But as I said, I got a lot of stuff from the UN's own reports. I mean, they're very detailed. You know, the the story of the Secretariat and Srebrenica is all laid out in great detail in the UN's own report on, on Srebrenica. It's just that, you know, who bothers to try and plough through that to uh, put that whole story together? I mean, it's the work of a book-writing journalist, really, you know, who's got plenty of time to sit and read through all these materials. Complicity with Evil, the United Nations in the Age of Modern Genocide can be found at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Adam Labor, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. In the winter of 2000, the eminent art historian T.J. Clark found himself at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, drawn to two paintings by the 17th century French artist Nicolas Poussin. A diary of his observations about the paintings and life in general is the basis for his latest book, The Sight of Death, an experiment in art writing. T.J. Clark holds the George C. and Helen N. Pardee Chair as Professor of Modern Art at the University of California at Berkeley. Tim Clark, thanks for being on the Yale Press podcast today. That's fine. It's a pleasure. The subtitle of your book, The Sight of Death, is An Experiment in Art Writing. What's experimental about this book? Well, uh, it's experimental to try to write a day-by-day journal um, which records over a period of months, and then eventually over uh, over a less frequent period of years, um, a return to two paintings and what happens 
when you confront the same paintings time and again. The two Poussin paintings at the heart of this book, this landscape with a man killed by snake, which normally is at the National Gallery in London, and landscape with a calm, which is at the Getty. You have a bit of a history with landscape with a man killed by a snake. When was the first time you saw it? <laughs> well, heaven knows. I mean, certainly way back in the, probably in the late 1950s, and, and then uh, when I was living in London in the 1960s, I, I saw it repeatedly, you know, and came to came to uh, to love it uh, more than any other painting in the National Gallery, I think, uh, which is saying something, right, given the extraordinary nature of that collection. Uh, so both of these paintings, Landscape of the Man Killed by Snake and Landscape of the Calm, were initially owned by the same man, uh, Jean Pontel. What was his relationship to the painter Nicolas Poussin? Uh, he was a, a friend, uh, a patron, um, and actually, for a time, he even managed uh, part of Poussin's money. He was a banker. Uh, we know very, very little about him. He's not a, he's not a well-known figure. He seems to have made his money in the silk trade in Lyon and then moved to Paris and uh, uh, became a banker. And uh, sad to say, we, there, sometime in the 18th century, we seem to have lost um, a correspondence, a sort of considerable correspondence between him and Poussin. Um, so, uh, so we just have to sort of piece the relationship together from bits and pieces. But the bits and pieces are pretty clear. They, they really became very fast friends. Uh, Poussin trusted Pointel intensely. And Pointel just bought and bought Poussins. He just he built a, an extraordinary collection. The reviews of this book in The Observer and The Independent, both papers in the UK, um, both reviewers went to the National Gallery to look at landscape with a man killed by a snake. And both of them mentioned that the conditions of viewing did not make long contemplation easy. Can someone do what you did in this book if they don't have your level of access? Well, of course, uh, of course uh, it was special, the conditions in which uh, I was able to see these paintings. They were, you know, together in a very beautiful, calm room with superb light, and and, and I could uh, just walk across the court from, uh, from my office and, and see them. So it, it was perfect. Um, but don't be discouraged is my, uh, is my advice to any reader. I think, I think it's perfectly possible. One of the themes that I got from your book is talking about how Poussin would use contradictory visual ideas in his paintings. What was Poussin trying to accomplish with this contradi- with these contradictory visual Im- images? Yes, I, I think that Poussin had a complicated view of the world, or, or uh, he had a view of the world as complicated, as full of ambiguities, contradictions, tensions between different states. Um, and he, he, he thought hard about uh, making pictures that would show that complexity. So uh, how do you do it in painting? Well, you take uh, certain obvious and central aspects of, of, of our visual life, right? Uh, the fact that we live in a condition that shifts perpetually between light and dark, for instance. And you, you you set up a condition in a picture, uh, which I think he did magnificently in uh, Landscape with a Man Killed by a Snake. 
in which there's a certain balance between darkness and light. In the foreground of this picture, uh, things are dark, and uh, that's where uh, death has happened. That's where the snake has has choked the life out of uh, a a victim coming to fill up a jug at a spring. Uh, So darkness looms in the foreground, and darkness is associated with danger and doom. But uh, in the background, uh, beyond a lake and a sunlit city, the dawn is coming up. And the dawn uh, is not just simply there uh, in the distance. It's infiltrating the, uh, the action in the foreground. So there's a, there, the, the, the longer you look, uh, the more aware you are of the interrelationship between two contrary aspects. Um, of our visual world and the way in which those aspects stand for contrary aspects of life or contrary aspects of life and death. Um, And that's Poussin's way of thinking. Um, He's constantly trying to stage uh, stage the world as an extraordinary balance of opposites. Uh, he's, He's ultimately, I think, some kind of optimist. He thinks it's possible to to have an equilibrium between uh, light and dark, life and death, but but uh, but he knows it's fragile, and uh, he wants his paintings to en- enact uh, the effort involved in making the the two contours coexist. The Sight of Death, an experiment in art writing, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with T.J. Clark, go to www.yalebooks.com/podcast. What will we know about life, the universe, and everything by 2017? In The Origins of the Future, 10 Questions for the Next 10 Years, scientist and writer John Grimman looks at the things the scientific community knows about how the universe functions and the questions that it may be able to answer in the next 10 years. John Gribben is a visiting fellow in astronomy at the University of Sussex and the author of many popular science books. John Gribben, thank you for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Why did you decide to write a book about the future of science as opposed to its past? Well, I've been writing a lot lately about the history of science, and uh, it seemed like a good idea to have a change of pace and uh, recharge my batteries by looking at the sort of cutting-edge research that's going on today and, as you say, looking ahead to the future to the discoveries we can expect over the next 10 years. You are probably one of the world's best-known writers of popular science. Have you found there's a key to good science writing that makes it accessible to a lot of people? I don't think there's a single key. There's there's a couple of things that have um, happened over the course of my career. I mean, one is just practice. The, the more you do it, the better you get. Um, but I found, as a per- very personal thing, which might not work for everybody, uh, I also write science fiction. And when I started writing fiction, my agent was... Um, very dubious about the whole business because there's there's no money in it, especially science fiction. Um, But I found that by writing fiction and learning how to develop characters and plot lines and uh, and all that sort of stuff, when I went back to writing non-fiction that I was using those skills which I developed partly through collaborating with really good writers. So if you treat science writing uh, not simply as a list of facts, which um, bad science writing is, but as an adventure, a story, and and you have... um, 
plots and, and developments and, and crises and so on. And, and that's what makes it good. It has to be storytelling, not just writing. Now onto the book. One of the names that pops up a couple times is Fred Hoyle, a man I'd never heard of. Who was Fred Hoyle? He, he was, well, I guess in the light of you saying that, I'd have to describe him as one of the unsung heroes of 20th century science, uh, although to my generation he's, he's quite sung. Um, he, he was a British astrophysicist and cosmologist uh, who really dominated what was happening in the 1960s, in particular 1960s and 70s, and I was a student uh, at his institute at that time. Uh, he was famously uh, one of the people who came up with the idea of the steady-state universe, of an eternal universe, which was a rival to the Big Bang Theory at the time. Uh, and he also, the key thing he did was he worked out how the elements are made inside stars. And it's one of the fascinating bits of science which I went into in another of my Yale books, so that we are literally made of stardust. All the elements in your body, except for hydrogen, are manufactured inside stars and spread through space. Fred Hoyle was the man who worked all that out. So apart from everything else he did, that's probably enough to justify him being better known than he is. You seem like a bit of a character from your book. He was also a bit of a character, yes. I mean, this is one reason why he's not as well known as he might have been. Um, he failed to get a Nobel Prize, almost certainly because he had a run-in with the Nobel Committee when they gave the award for the discovery of pulsars, a special kind of radio star, uh, which was actually discovered by a student, uh, a girl called Jocelyn Bell. Uh, and her supervisor didn't steal the credit, but obviously had his name on the papers and so on. And in due course, the Nobel Committee gave the Nobel Prize to her supervisor, not to her. And Fred really lambasted them for that. And, uh, of course, that completely scuppered any chance of them ever giving him a prize. You use the term anthropic reasoning several mm. times in the book. What is anthropic reasoning? This is um, a kind of argument which says that the universe has to be the way it is or we wouldn't be here. It's not saying that it was made for us. It's saying that, that you know that there must be certain things happening in the universe in order for people like us to be around, for life to be around. And one of the examples is going back to Fred Hoyle. He worked out in the 1950s the key step in this process of making elements inside stars is making carbon for various reasons. I won't go into all of them, but one is that carbon is the most important molecule for life. It's, it's uh, Carbon chemistry is called organic chemistry because it's so important. So if there's no carbon around, there'd be no life, there'd be no people. So the fact that people exist tells us that there's a way to make carbon in the universe. Now, at that time, when people did calculations of how reactions occurred inside stars, they couldn't find a way to make carbon. Uh, but Fred said, well, there must be a way. And the only way it would work would be if there was a particular kind of rare interaction. And the physicists in the labs on Earth said, oh, that's rubbish. You know, that's so unlikely. You know, we just don't believe it. But he pestered and pestered them. And in the end, some uh, people at, at, uh, in, in California at Caltech uh, carried out experiments, as they told me later, just to shut Fred up and make <laughs> him go away. And they did the experiments, and they found this unusual reaction called a resonance, exactly where he'd predicted. Now, that's the best example of anthropic pre reasoning. No, we exist. Carbon must be made inside stars, or we wouldn't exist. So this particular bit of physics must be true. Well, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is the fact that, that there's life at this point in the time of the, in the universe's history because we're at a kind of a, I don't want to say a stasis point, but kind of in between uh, gravity pulling the universe back in and then what you refer to as dark energy pulling the universe out. 
this is one of the big stories at the moment in cosmology, this dark energy, which is starting to make the universe expand faster. Um, people probably know that we come out of the Big Bang, a, a, a state of very dense uh, matter and energy, and the universe has been expanding for 13 or 14 billion years. And this dark energy is just starting to push it faster. And in a, a relatively little while, in terms of those tens of billions of years, the universe will expand so fast that things will be pulled apart and there'll be no chance for life to exist. And a little earlier on, the universe was so hot and dense and so much radiation that life couldn't exist. So the fact that we're here now, just at this point when dark energy is, is taking over, isn't a coincidence because it's the only time, as far as we can tell, in the life of the universe when beings like us could exist. Maybe in the far future some other kinds of beings will exist, but people like us certainly won't. Well, the name of the book is The Origins of the Future, 10 Questions for the Next 10 Years. Was there an 11th question about the future you wanted to tackle but just didn't have the time? There, there is an 11th question, which I, I think will make a whole book in itself. I, I stop um, at the point where uh, I discuss the emergence of life, uh, which I think is related to cosmic events like this business of carbon being made inside stars. And for those reasons, I think that life is very common in the universe. But the immediate question then is, is intelligent life common? Uh, are there other beings out there with the capacity to look up at the universe through their telescopes and to wonder about things and to understand how stars work? That's a huge question, and it was just too much to tackle in, in one last chapter of the book. The Origins of the Future, 10 Questions for the Next 10 Years, is on sale now at both real and virtual booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with John Gribben, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Yale University Press's holiday sale has been extended until January 31st, with 50% off of hundreds of titles. For more information, go to www.yalebooks.com sale. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast. And look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press blog. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. Also, if you have any questions for the authors on the show, send them in, and I'll pick one each episode for an Ask the Author segment. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast, which is ably engineered by Stephen Cray. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. Keep downloading and listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com.